This is Melissa Hale, Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we are so excited to have with us this morning Penny Shaw, who anybody who lives in the hill towns knows is synonymous with theater. And I first saw her on stage maybe 30 years ago. She was Annie in Annie Get Your Gun, and I had brought up my aunt from New York, who was in her 80s at the time, and had seen Ethel Merman on Broadway in the role. And I asked her afterwards, what did you think? And she said, well, this audience was certainly enjoying it a lot more. Uh And I think, to me, that's the essence of what Penny's done with the Hilltowns players, because she brings in people, like in that particular audience, there were families with little kids, there were teenagers in the back row holding hands, (laughs) there were elderly couples, and everybody was together and having a good time. So... Welcome, Penny. Thank you. It's good to be here. I would love to start with how you got this way. And you told us as we were warming up our microphones a very cute anecdote. And maybe you could tell us how you became a performer and a little about that. All right. Well, I come from a family that loves to sing. We're not afraid to get up in front of people. Um, A long line of people that love to entertain and in talent shows, that was a big thing when my parents were growing up at the school and to the community. And that carried over for us as well as children through 4-H. There were talent shows that they had every year. I loved it. But going back before being able to, or old enough to be in talent shows, I would entertain my brother and my sisters with stuffed animals. <laughs> and I would do different plays and reenact the stories from our storybooks and use different voices, and they still remember that to this day. That I made them laugh, and I remember that feeling of making people laugh and making them feel good, and I wanted to do that. Um, yes, the microphone. When we would sing uh, different places, I, again, loved singing and entertaining people and being in front of a, a crowd, but I sang with my sister and cousin who had softer voices than me, and so they took the microphone away from me. <laughs> because your voice would carry over anyway. Yes, I have a loud, I call it a playground voice, the, the monitor out on the playground calling the kids in. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, I didn't get to have the microphone. But I have always enjoyed being up on stage. The first time was when I was 11, and we had a Christmas play at our church. And I played Abigail, a crippled girl whose father didn't love her because she was a girl. And I couldn't be her, her, his son. <laughs> so I really got into that part. I And um, eventually at the end of the play, I was healed. It was a Christmas night, so it was a Christmas miracle. Um, but I, I was bit by the bug. Yeah. And I just enjoy, yes, bringing the the people on stage together and the people out in the audience yeah, because like what up you there do is us. so much more than your own performance, although you often have a cameo role. I see you I on do. stage mixed in with the various <laughs> productions I've seen over the years. But tell us about the formation of the Hilltowns Players and how that happened. Uh, they began <clears throat> in 1982. So this is our 35th year. And I was with them in the very first show, Little Abner. I played Daisy May. I was 24, oh my goodness, <laughs> so long ago. Um, Mitch Haverly, Arlene Lindrum, Ann Whipple, and John Foster. Mitch and John were teachers at the Byrne High School, 
and Arlene and Anne were very involved with their children in the high school in sports and music. <clears throat> and, and as I'm listening, several familiar of those with the names. are yeah, very familiar names, real mainstays of the community, but very much. many of them have died now. So. Yes, we only have Mitch, Yeah, and I call him our, our father. <laughs> <laughs> and you're the mother? <laughs> People have said so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but they... <clears throat> They wanted to provide something for the community. Back in 1982, we were the only community theater group. So it was a novel idea. There were a lot of people that were very interested in it. I was because I grew up out in Michigan in a small town, and we had no theater program in our school. So I would go to the school north of us, which had a larger population, and they had a theater program. And I would go every year to their musical. I just want to be up there so bad. (laughs) So when a friend told me that this new group was starting and auditions were such and such a day, I thought, oh, yes. (laughs) So, um, So it was for people like me that they started it as well, you know, that all walks of life, for all many reasons, uh, they knew there were people out there, and they were right. <laughs> and and they've been coming for 35 years. They just keep coming. Yeah. So <laughs> what sustained you for all that time? I mean, that's, that's a huge commitment. It because, is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When I first started, I just was acting on the stage, probably for the first three musicals. And when the show was over, I was so discouraged. It was a mild feeling of depression because, wow, you put all that time into the rehearsals and now it's done. So then I wanted to get more involved. So I started helping with sewing costumes and uh, building set or painting sets was my my uh, thing because I'm artistic. Um, and then I have a degree in commercial art, so I volunteered to put together the playbill with the old cut and paste, where you actually cut it and paste it. I'm familiar with those days, yes. (laughs) And um, when I got more involved, I felt more fulfilled. I started meeting the 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 behind-the-curtains crew, which I hadn't really gotten to know before, those people. And you start to become like family. And then I started getting involved in more things throughout the year than just that fall musical. And in doing so, then you're putting more of yourself in it. You're experiencing more, which I love to do, learn new things. So um, when the show is over, when you put that much of yourself into it, and I always tell everybody, uh, find something to do the next week because you're going to have this big crash. I don't have that kind of a crash because by the time from auditions, which are mid-August until the show, which is at the end of November, when you do the playbill, when you're sewing costumes, when you're working on sets, um, you're kind of ready for it to be over. So put the baby in the the bed and go take a nap. (laughs) So I, in becoming more involved, um, I've, I've met more people and... Eventually, uh, that evolved to directing, by default, actually. In 1991, we did Brigadoon. 
and I was the president of the group at that time. And we had a young a gentleman who was not from the Hilltowns, but he came highly recommended, and we invited him to direct the show. And he was very artistic, very gifted, but um, seemed to be going through some personal struggles. So he was flipping and flopping from one rehearsal to the next. I told you last time to do it this way, and we go, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't. So he was struggling. So halfway through our rehearsals, we let him go, and I stepped in for the first time directing. And I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> but I felt obligated being president of the group. And it was a big show, Brigadoon, yeah. and didn't want it to flop. And so I jumped in with both feet for cold turkey <laughs> for the first time. And did it go well? It How went did... well, and I got bit. <laughs> and why is it you like directing? What is it about that? I I love creating. I, I write stories and songs and plays. And so when you're directing, you have a script, and, and for the most part, you have to follow that script. But when it just says... Um, you know, the crowd is upset. <laughs> you know, you don't want to just tell the, the cast, okay, look upset. You want to say, okay, what would people do, different personalities do, if they're upset? This one over here would cry. That one over there might punch a, a, a chair. This one here might kick, you know, the wall. <laughs> so you start piecing that together. So you're choreographing words. You're yes. taking them and yes. making them moving. Yep. And so and and they may not think of it. You know, if a director just says, Okay, you're mad in this scene, they might just get the look on their face and go, Well, that's boring. <laughs> so then you start giving directions for even just emotions and what I like to do, um, because I remember what it was like. Um, being on stage and someone just said, okay, sing your song. You're this character. Sing your song. <laughs> but I remember interviewing you way back 30 years ago as Annie, and you had a whole idea mm-hmm. of how you were portraying her. You had read history books. Yes. You had thought you had developed your whole character. It wasn't yes. like you were just reading a script. No. <laughs> you had like a whole sense of who this person was and how you were playing her. Yes. So do you kind of foster that and bring that out in the different players? I do. That you... I do. Yeah. I'll, I will actually spend time during rehearsals saying, okay, for example, you're you're sad. Everybody's supposed to be sad about this. Think of a time when you were sad and um, try to remember that and be that time in your life. Bring it here on this stage and be that, put it into this person's character and make them sad. And um, I like encouraging them to be creative, to come to me with ideas. I was talking with a friend of mine who directs high school plays, and we were um, comparing notes. And I had said to her uh, what I just said to you, that I, I, I like to encourage them to come to me with ideas. And she said, oh, I can't stand that. <laughs> oh, dear. It throws her off. It does take a lot more time. Sure. Because you have to try to work that in if it's a good idea. If it sounds like it might work, then you want to give it a try. If um, if it doesn't sound like a good idea, you don't want to shoot them down. 
one so of you're the, trying to encourage them as actors to, to develop themselves at the yes. same time you're trying to make the whole thing work on stage as a larger yes whole. yes and and it's a learning process for them too because I've done it for many years so some of the things I know will work we've we've tried it and it does work sure go ahead and do that some of their ideas, like if they wanted to do Peter Pan and fly him from the rafters, we don't have the equipment up there to do that. <laughs> so I would have to say that's a great idea, but we're we're in burn. <laughs> we're kind of limited here. So let's brainstorm and, and see what else we can come up with that would be just as fun and just as convincing and, and not as... Uh, much of a threat to the person that we're trying to fly up there. Yeah. yeah. Well, the upcoming production um, that Atro Schneider will be writing about in our special Christmas issue is Deck the Halls. And I would just like to hear about how you, we heard about how you started as an actress and became a director, but how did you become a writer and how on earth does one person (laughs) write book, write songs, write the whole thing for a musical yeah. on stage. Yeah. I have a creative mind and it's it's just <clears throat> always going. <laughs> always going. And so writing a, a story is not that hard for me. Um someone had asked me uh, how long it took me to write the storyline, the 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 script, the dialogue for this play probably a, a, a couple of weeks it because oh once gosh. I get started <laughs> can you give us I without giving away <laughs> yeah, without giving away the anything important can you kind of give us the gist of it what yes you know? um we did Bao Humbug a few yes, years back I wrote about that I remember and um and the cast did a really good job and just I, so people if they have didn't <laughs> see it, it's um, Dickens' Christmas Carol, yes. but kind of told more from the Scrooge point of view. Yes, yeah. it's a little bit different, and, yeah. and I like new things. I mm-hmm. I like to do new plays that people haven't seen. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a challenge when you're doing one that everybody comes in with certain expectations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if they haven't seen the, the play before, you can do what you want with it because yeah. they don't know. Um, so I've always liked Christmas. Uh, that's my people will ask me what's your favorite time of the year and I will always say Christmas my Christmas tree goes up decorations the weekend of Thanksgiving and I take it down after Martin Luther King Day (laughs) (laughs) so I love it and then I'm sad even taking it down then so we did um, Bah Humbug and Usually after we've done a play is when my creative mind is going still going full speed ahead. The play is done and I'm still going. Um, so we actually did Babes in Toyland in 2015. So two years ago is when I wrote this play. I was thinking of the previous play that we did, the holiday play of Bah Humbug. And thought I want to write a Christmas play I've written a children's play I've written a civil war romance I've written a comedy murder mystery a western musical and um, I've written six and the Hilltons players have performed all of them for me which is good because when you're a playwright play publishing companies would prefer ideally for you to have performed it or at least 
had it uh, read in like a reader's theater style mm-hmm. so you can hear what it sounds like and make changes as needed. Mm-hmm. So the Hilltons players have performed all of them, and I'm very thankful to them. They're my family. <laughs> and they say, sure, Penny, we'll do it. So I wanted to write a Christmas play um, for just because. <laughs> and so it didn't take me long to write the script. It, it's not a Scrooge style. When you say, um, you know, the story about Ebenezer Scrooge, again, you instantly have this thought of this the spirits, their scary parts, their sad parts. I didn't want it to be that way. So I don't have scary spirits. I have lovable angels <laughs> in disguise who are trying to help this one lady who is an, uh, an executive. Um, it's all about the money for her. She wants to make more money. And her idea of doing this just two days before Christmas is to lay off the top wage earners in her business and cut everybody else's pay by 15%. And then she'll make the money she wants. Maybe she'll want more, of course. Her second-in-command can't do that. She doesn't have the heart to do that. She loves the people. And so she makes a deal with her boss. And she says, I, if you don't lay anyone off and don't cut their pay, I will work for you for free for the whole next year. Of course, that's going to be a, a deal breaker for the boss. And the boss goes, and trade for what? What are you going to get out of this? And she says, I have, I have my reasons. She says, but I want you then to agree to follow me around for the next 24 hours wherever I go. And you do whatever I tell you to do. So Halls is thinking, oh, here we go. <laughs> but can't pass it up because it's a money deal. So she agrees to do it, not knowing that her second in command is going to take her to a soup kitchen, um, uh, to the park where there are homeless people and get to know them, ring the bell for a charity uh, volunteers that are collecting money for those less fortunate all the things that she would never want to be caught dead doing. (laughs) And for the next 24 hours, she has to do it. She goes to a nursing home where there are old people. (laughs) She has to observe two juveniles, two teens in um, the county jail and just listen to their conversation. So So she's invisible as she's watching these things? In the first act, no. This is very real. Okay. Jones finally has enough of her attitude and says, you know what, I don't want you to talk to me. Don't say anything more because you're just driving me nuts with the (laughs) things that you say. Another thing that uh, she has to do is sleep on a cot in a rescue mission for the night, which she agreed to do whatever for the next 24 hours. So there she is sleeping on this cot. And in the second act, there's a dream where these two angels, who are homeless people in the first act, come to her in her dream and take her around to these different places to show her it's their assignment to soften her heart. (laughs) And does it work? It does. The final straw is a little um, angel named Faith that gives her a gift and tells her sometimes you just need to believe in things that you can't see. Give you, you know, this gift is from me to you. No, you didn't earn it, (laughs) but I'm giving it to you because I love you. And so all of that 
uh, that's the final straw. Everything leads up to that, and Halls finally has uh, a change of heart. And then I'm not going to give the rest of it away. Okay. <laughs> wow. What a wonderful story. So once you've written this in three weeks, <laughs> how do you then go about coming up with the music? Or does it... The music... Um, I find I write the music second because I need to know the characters. And in each scene, the the emotion that they're feeling and the mood and what... In, what I, message I want to uh, come across in the song itself. So then that determines, am I going to make it an upbeat song? Uh, oh my goodness, you're making me cry song. <laughs> or thanks for the laugh, that was a great song. And so that determines the style of song that I'm going to write. And then what do I think that character or those characters are feeling if they were going to speak their feelings what would they say and I'll write those words down and then I try to put them into a rhyming uh, style and then make it fit the music the music takes me months (laughs) so you write the actual notes first and then apply the words to it or the the notes come out of the words or how does this work I write the words first for the most part um, and then I just sit down at the piano and I start playing. And if I think it's supposed to be an, um, an angry feeling, then I, I'll hit those minor chords <laughs> or a sad feeling. The minor chords come out. Um, but I just, I do a lot of keyboard doodling <laughs> to, before I get the, the music that finally fits. Wow. And And then what is it like to see it come to life? And you're shaping it, too, as the director. Do you tweak it as you go along? Oh, very much. (laughs) Yes. uh, A lot of the tweaking, yes, comes. And I've I've told my cast this. We'll be up on the stage, and I'll tell them initially what I've written down on the script. And they have the script in their hand. And I'll say, all right, you're over here. You come on from that side. You go over there, and you do this. And when I watch them do it, sometimes that works. And other times I go, okay, hold on. <laughs> that that looked so good in my mind when I wrote it last winter. But we can't do that. <laughs> and sometimes the songs, too. One of the songs, the opening song, was Deck the Halls. I have, I think, seven traditional songs in it. And oh, nice. So you've layered in original yes. songs with ones the audience will already know. Yes, and yeah. maybe, hopefully, sing along oh, with us. Oh, great. And then seven that I wrote myself, but in Deck the Halls, and then I will um, write an adaptation for some of the traditional songs that they're familiar with, which I did with the opening number, and it sounded so good in my brain. <laughs> and then when I... Start, when we start, Jeff Van Eiderstein is our president as well as our music director. And uh, when he was teaching it to them, I realized I, need to, I needed to change that big, wonderful Broadway <laughs> production to fit us so that um, I simplified it so that our, it builds up the confidence of the cast and when you build their confidence up, then they sing louder. And But if you give them a very complicated song, they get all panicky and they don't sing very loud. <laughs> and so I took out all of this, fa-la-la-la-la, fa-la-la, fa-la-la-la-la. <laughs> like, nope, we're not doing that. We're just sticking with the fa-la-las. 
and they sound great. So yes, I have to change it sometimes. Other times, um, I make mistakes, and they'll come up and say, "Do you know you put that? In? This is not how you would say that." And I'll look and I'll go, "Oh, you're right. That was the autocorrect mistake." <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my fault sometimes. Yeah. So I do have to change it, and I ha- I can't have an ego in this if I want this to work. I have to be Penny and work with my family. <laughs> so, well, you mentioned with these six plays and uh, you know companies that are interested in them. Have mm-hmm. you had them produced elsewhere and gone to see them? And what's that like? I not yet. I <clears throat> have one that uh, sent back to me. This was a couple of years ago. It was Beulah by the Sea, and we've actually performed it twice yeah. because the community really liked it, and they kept saying, "Why don't you do it again?" So we did it in 2005, and then we did it again, uh, performed it again last fall. And a place, a play company, a uh, production company, no, that purchases plays from right. playwrights. Out in Colorado, I believe it is called Big Dog Productions. They liked it, and they want to buy it. So I'm all excited. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when I write my music, it's all by hand with a pencil and an eraser <laughs> and so I write the words by hand and I I'm very old-fashioned and I write all the notes by hand and I'm not good at figuring out the timing but I finally get it when I face struggle long enough but I know what they would need it's a new it's a newer um, way um, they like to provide uh, CD accompaniments for so people rehearsal, can listen to yeah, for rehearsing sounds. and for performances. So I need to put one of those together for them and then polish up the sheet music. So my husband bought me a, a keyboard, a MIDI, <clears throat> and a computer program, Sibelius. You hook your, com- your keyboard to the computer and you play your song and the computer will come up with an initial sheet music on the, on the screen and then you can make changes as you want to, and it'll play back for you. It's a whole program, and I love it. I just haven't had time. <laughs> right. I don't know how you fit this in with the rest of your that, life. Because yeah. I'm so involved in the Hilltops Player yeah. shows. <laughs> so I was determined to, after last year, um, just take a step back from directing for the Hilltops Players, helping them behind the scenes, study this program, get... Beulah by the Sea, ready to go and send it to the publishing company. Well, in the meantime, I had written Deck the Halls because you don't just stop and do nothing, you know, <laughs> just not create anything. And so I thought after I get Beulah by the Sea sent to Big Dog, then I will do Deck the Halls and I will offer that to the Hilton's players to perform in 2019 because we do a holiday every other year, a holiday per- performance production. So I, w- I didn't have anything ready other than I wrote the script and the words. I had the words and I had the melody in my mind, but nothing on sheet music and no CD to rehearse by at mm-hmm. home. So we were going to do It's a Wonderful Life this year. Our 35th year, we thought, well, let's do a big one. And we didn't have enough. I, don't, I was going to direct it because I knew we would need men. And... Um, we didn't have enough men audition. It's a perennial problem, isn't it? Is. it? With high school productions too. Yes, I wonder it why is. that is. I, you know, I think 
Uh, there's this stigma with guys, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> that's that's just girly stuff. I I went down to, but um, it must be cultural because like when my so. kids took ballet for years, all girls, and then you look at Russia and there are all these yes. men and the Shakespeare plays, yeah, where women men played women. dressed as women. Yeah, act, yeah. So I don't know what the change was, but I do think um, there's a macho block there I, I don't know how else to use how else to describe it um i'm not gonna get up on stage you're gonna make me wear pantyhose <laughs> which my husband did his senior year they did kiss me kate oh and he'd never been on stage before and now he's in it with us like forever and ever um he loves it so a friend talked him into being in this musical he didn't have any idea what it was about well, they had to be in leotards and these little whatever they wear during <laughs> yeah. Shakespeare time. And so he's up there in green leotards. <laughs> so I, I think uh, there's a lot of guys out there that think that's going to happen to them. In Beulah by the Sea, actually, in order to save their town, and it's a town that can't have guns or bullets or anything, and there's robbers that are going to descend. They've heard that they're going to come and rob them. They don't have any way to save their town. The only thing they can think of is to act like they're crazy (laughs) and think that it's normal. So when the robbers come into town, all of the females in the town are dressed like men and all of the males in the town are dressed like women. So yeah, when a person like me writes a play like that, a guy that you know doesn't want anybody to think that he's anything but a man... Isn't going to even try out. So I, I really think that's that may be a big part of it. I know when uh, years ago I went to down to Broadway to, to New York City, stayed with a friend, and I interviewed um, him and some of his friends that acted in Broadway, and I asked him that same question, and he goes, "Well, uh, he says it's going to offend a lot of people," and he says, "I don't mean to." He says, "I have a lot of friends, a guy friends that are gay." But if you have a guy that's not, he doesn't want to be around him. And he says that's so sad because they're some of the greatest people. And yeah. he says that I think that's the stigma. Huh. You know, they think well, that's that's not for that's not a macho world. And and I'm going, hey, stop it, okay? Just stop it. Yeah. <laughs> love people. That's who we are. Just just love us. You know. And that's what this play is about too. Is well, accepting people so as there they weren't are. enough men to do the play you there had planned. Not. And this play, as you've described it, the two leads are women, and then the yes. angels are women. Yes. So you've got, <laughs> and it's a great year. Yeah. It's the year of the New York State getting the right to vote. So it's this, a yes, women's. yes, and yes. and that's the thing that um, uh, Rose from the Enterprise mm-hmm. here. She interviewed me for the article and. Um, she had said, I noticed you have a lot of parts for women. I said, well, it wasn't originally. You you write the script yeah. and then be willing to modify it. A lot of people are not. A lot of playwrights say, no, don't you do that to my play. This part is for a man, and I only want a man to play it. I don't want a woman dressing up like a man to play this part. And so we're kind of limited in what we do, but not in my place. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, many times in this conversation, you've referred to the Hilltowns players as like family. Yes. And could you just kind of expand on that and your <laughs> philosophy? Because I've watched you direct, you know, coming to some rehearsals. And just the way you bring in people who might be shy or you wouldn't think of them really being on stage. Just talk a little about this idea that you have. Because it's not like any other... Uh, company I've written about. I've I've been told that by a lot of people, and and um, I just know what it feels like to not be. A, I don't mean being you know people purposely ignoring me as a kid growing up or leaving me out um, it, because I wasn't good enough. Sports was a big thing. I was the last one chosen. <laughs> so when you grow up with that. Um, you, it gives you, you can go two different ways with that. You can be very bitter or you can say, I'm going to change the world (laughs) in my own little corner of the world. I'm going to change it. And that's why for our fall musical, we don't turn anybody away. Uh, if they sing awful, they're still in the chorus. (laughs) If they did not read with a strong voice during auditions, we don't turn them away. We may even give them a small speaking part and encourage them to give it a shot. Um, We had one girl that did that. She auditioned and she spoke very quietly. And I gave each auditioner uh, three opportunities to go and stand in front of the audition committee and read from the script and encourage them, okay, this time... Do it with this emotion or try to speak it just a little bit louder. You don't need to look at me. You can look over there at the wall and pretend that you're talking to someone who's outside. So you have to speak louder. So try it again. By the time she read it the third time, her she was so good. <laughs> and I gave her a different character to read for, which was um, a flirt. Not in this play, but in um, It's a Wonderful Life. That girl... I can't remember her name. That She flirted with them in high school. She came back as a young adult and was all flirty, and I cannot remember the character's name. But I had this gal read that character's lines, and wow, she blew us away. Thinking, Wait a minute. This was the girl who just 10 minutes ago was all quiet with her voice. Now she's going, hi, Frankie. And I'm going, wow. <laughs> so we ended up, trying her out, giving her a small part in Deck the Halls. She is the young girl in prison who is discouraged because it's Christmas and her sister said she'd come and visit her and it's late and she thinks she's not coming. So she, after she, I gave her the script, she said, this is funny. She said... You were encouraging me to not be so shy when I said my lines, and now you've given me the character where I'm supposed to be shy. (laughs) And I said, yes, because we know you can act shy now. (laughs) Because we know you can do all of this stuff, and instead of being shy, now you're acting shy. There's a difference. (laughs) There is. So it's just fun to see each person's confidence grow up on the stage. We've had people who have been really down in the dumps. Um, Life has just been really rough to them. And 
they just decided to give this a try or someone has encouraged them. And they've gone away feeling much better about life because even if life, their life's not going to change or it's going to get worse, and sometimes it does, they have us now. <laughs> so they know. And they're, they're seen by the community in a different way, too. They because are. so many people come to watch, and there they are on stage yes. doing something. There's a, there's a gal that's been with us oh, over 20 years. And I ran into her father the other day, and both his wife and his daughter, it's their only child, are in our shows and have been with us for years and years. Well, that's another fascinating family, idea of family. Generations. <laughs> because, yeah. We have generations. Yeah. In it, yeah. And he said, I just was blown away, he said, that both my wife and my daughter are in show after show with you, and they get up there, and they just totally amaze me with their talent and their confidence, but their homebodies, and they're quiet when they're at home. You want to go out to dinner? Nah. <laughs> you want to go see a movie? Well, we can see what's on TV. And he goes, I can't believe the transition, the transformation in the two of them. You get them on the stage, and it's like, uh, where's my wife and where's my daughter? <laughs> so, yes, and, you know, we are generational. Will Osterhout is a lifetime member. His two daughters, Amy and Terry, have been in many shows with us. And now his grandchildren, Zach and Bree and Tyler and Kyle have all been on the stage. When we did It's a Pirate's Life, all of them were together in that show. And I have a picture of them. They actually put one in our playbill of that photo this year. Um, from Will, telling them all to break a leg, oh, and nice. it's he, it's Will and his two daughters and his his uh, two of his three three of his grandchildren, and then another one of his son's grandson Zach that just joined us a couple of years ago um, in in a saloon dress from last year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a unique group. Our time is just oh, flown. Yeah. Do you have any closing thoughts other than see the show? <laughs> see um. the show. It's um, my grandson had asked me this of all the plays that I've written. Which one do I like best? Yeah, and I said, this is this is the one. It's a Christmas theme. It's a holiday theme. It's your favorite a, holiday. Yes, and it seems to embody your life's view. It does. Yes, which is looking out for people in need and yes. being kind. Yes, and and uh, the flip side of that, giving second another second chance. That's how I like to say it. Giving another second chance to someone that maybe you just soon ignore. <laughs> <laughs> but there is one scene where Annie, who is a homeless gal, uh, who in the second act is one of the two angels, and my husband Rich is also a homeless vet, uh, Bobby, in, in the show, in the act one, who is an angel. So Annie and Bobby are angels on assignment, and they're, they're disguised, are homeless people. But uh, I believe there are angels among us. I believe they live the lives that we do. And so to make sure people knew that that's one of the things I believe, <laughs> Bobby is homeless, a homeless veteran. He was a medic. And so... Annie says to Jones, who's very upset with Halls for trying to do this to our employees, she said, you know, maybe you need to walk in your boss's shoes. Try to figure out why she is the way she is, how things used to be for her, how they are now, and how they could be. 
if only someone cares. If we could all do that, understand how somebody else feels. Boy, yes. It's just... <laughs> and what's really, what's, what was neat, because I like that walk a mile in someone else's shoes before you judge. And so when Jones takes Halls to the park and first meets Bobby, Hall's whole idea is to get, or Joan's whole idea is to get her boss, Hall's, to actually walk in someone else's shoes. So she, because Hall's has to do whatever Jones tells her for the next 24 hours, the first thing that she's going to make Hall's do is wear Bobby's combat boots. Oh, literally. Yes. Literally wear the shoes. For the whole show. Oh, yes. my. So, so you she's made walking, the metaphor yes, visual. come to visual. life. <laughs> yeah. And in trade, she had to buy some dress, men's dress shoes to give to Bobby. And so he wears those for the rest of the show. So, yes, walk a mile in oh, some I, shoes. Oh, I love that metaphor. That's <laughs> great. Too. Well, thank you, thank Penny. You. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>